32 counties. United by people. My name is Una. And my name is Andrea. And this is United, United Ireland. Ireland. Nearly. <laughs> Every week in United Ireland, we go under the hood of issues in Ireland beyond the headlines, bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about. Uh, right now, we are smack bang in the middle of election season also known as the most important election in a generation, according to Sinn Féin Vice President Michelle O'Neill at the party's election launch event. Similar sentiments from Jeffrey Donaldson on the back of a truck um, at an anti-protocol rally as well. Um, <laughs> so this is episode three of our four or five parter on the Northern Irish Assembly elections. Um, and with the North heading to the polls on May 5th, it's getting very close. We are talking to expert analysts, giving you constituency profiles, speaking to candidates beyond the usual heads you're used to listening to, digging into the issues that matter to the actual people voting in the North. And most excitingly, it's the return of my facts. So far in this series, we've spoken to Susan McKay about the big picture issues in the election and questioned what unionism's big ideas were or whether they in fact exist. Last week, we honed in on a new school of candidates eschewing partisan politics with Emma D'Souza, an independent candidate. And this week, we're looking at culture policy. It's often overlooked in Northern elections, but what does this election mean for the arts and culture sectors? What supports are needed? What's the buzz in the North with art vibes? It often feels that Belfast in particular is doing really great things culturally. So we're going to have a little look at that. And what are the parties saying about culture? You're going to be looking at that too, Andrea. Yes, I have been uh, doing extensive research on all their uh, manifestos, have pulled the key pieces out of that. Uh, Actually, I went through the BBC website. (laughs) And we'll be talking to Sarah McBriar, the founder and creative director director of AVA, AVA, one of the most buzzed about forward-looking and successful festivals on the island of Ireland and an edition of which also takes place in London. Now, of course, this only happens because of your amazing support, dear patrons, supporters of joy. You make this podcast run and we're incredibly grateful for that. With your help, we're able to do our own thing, bring you original and alternative perspectives on political, environmental, social and cultural issues across the island of Ireland. Um, thank you to those who support our work so far um, and if you are listening and enjoying this it would be great if you could sign up and support us with uh, three euro a month and pay for the content that you dearly love it's on patreon.com forward slash United Ireland you get rewards bonus content Sunday Soothe and the warm fuzzy feeling of being part of United Ireland crew that makes this podcast last and we do have some news because we don't really operate in series, but we do have series two coming at you. Don't know if you know what that means, but it's pretty exciting. Stand by. Now it's time for election news. So the international coverage uh, on the assembly elections is warming up. There was kind of a whatever piece in this spectator. It was a really good piece, actually, in the Financial Times uh, by Jude Weber assessing the situation, um, including an interview with Michelle O'Neill. Um, other election news, this is crappy news, actually, uh, around poster vandalism. Obviously, this is something that happens in plenty of elections. It can often take on a different flavor um, in assembly elections, though. There have been 41 incidents of poster vandalism reported to the police so far. And much more worryingly, there was an attack on SDLP candidate Elsie Trainer 
which is being treated as hate crime. She's running as a candidate in Belfast South. And when she saw two men removing her posters, she followed them and filled them on her phone. Um, but the footage was really actually horrible to see people be so um, grossly confrontational. One of them lashed out at her, assaulting her. The other tried to grab her phone. Uh, that is grim and just absolutely not. We do not need people being hassled just because they're running for election. Uh, DUP leader Jeffrey Donaldson is leaning into the politics of fear in a major way, saying that this election is a battle for Northern Ireland itself. And in a way, he's kind of not wrong, but uh, he really sees that as a cause for panic rather than opportunity. And his Easter message to party supporters said that a Sinn Féin victory would put them on course to pursue Irish unity. They'd be running around Washington and London and all, Michelle and uh, Mary Lou, selling this as an as an idea so the panic in some way mirrors the Fine Gael discourse in the south where they talk about Sinn Féin's intention and not their own vision really Meanwhile the haunted Victorian marionette found in the dusty attic of a derelict museum activating a centuries old curse called colonialism otherwise known as Jacob Rees-Mogg is being an absolute dose as per usual saying that the Tories can do whatever they want with the Northern Irish Protocol um, so, and he said oh. the, <laughs> sound um, law international law treaties what are those we don't care about those uh, the United Kingdom is much more important than any agreement that we have with any foreign power um, haunted Victorian marionette child uh, Mog Reese Mog said um, now it is of course like there's so much chitter chatter always about the Northern Irish Protocol and because of all the mad Brexit, never-ending negotiations and agreements and pulling out and all rejiggery pokery kind of get confused when you hear people talk about the Northern Irish Protocol. So just to refresh, remember that the Northern Irish Protocol is basically an aspect of the Brexit withdrawal agreement that figures out um, the different kind of customs and immigration vibes between uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic, um, which of course now European Union border basically, and also some bits and bobs in terms of trade and movement of goods between the North and the rest of the UK. So there was a bit of magical thinking put in practice that while the North is outside of the EU, thanks to Brexit, the EU single market bits and free movement of goods can still apply, while also avoiding a hard border on the island and creating instead a made-up border somewhere down the Irish Sea, uh, because obviously Brexit is a nonsensical shit show and no one in political power in England, especially not those campaigning for it, considered Northern Ireland because they actually couldn't give a toss about it. So now... It's time for <laughs> Andrea's election facts. Yes, we are digging into culture policy. Andrea, it's your like patented award winning award may have been delivered by us to ourselves election facts and this week we're looking at culture policy and you've been looking at um the policies of the different parties oh Una, i have gone deep i have been working for hours on these policies so if anyone wants to get them off me um for use in their articles or journalism or whatever no problem it's all <laughs> g with me um, just check with the BBC. <laughs> yes, so, that's right. So there's the different, the BBC and other um, outlets have been looking at um, culture policies and you've also been looking at the parties' websites and all that kind of crack to actually see where they're at with this kind of stuff instead of all of the so-called headline or top-line policies um, that are just the circular conversations about the future of the North and the protocol and so on. Yeah, and I think it's really like, 
easy to get caught up in the fact that when there's so much at stake, that culture can become such a secondary thing not to care about when actually, um, as we found talking to Sarah this week, like culture can actually be the proponent that brings things past all these conversations and symbolism and um, things that mean so much but mean so little. So I think um, it's maybe by looking at these policies that they have been under um, approached that there is maybe um, something to be said for the fact that that has been the way it is. Mm. So who's doing what? What are Sinn, what are Sinn Féin's cultural policies with regards to how they're pitching that in this election? Uh, so it is very much uh, a focus on the implementation of the Irish language um, and the Ulster Scots language heritage and culture strategy and the implementation of an Irish language act. Now, I know there was conversations um a few weeks ago about the fact that the Irish Language Act wouldn't be implemented before um, the, these elections. So there is, the, that is coming through a lot of the campaign um, from all the different parties. Um, they also want to implement recommendations from Culture, Arts and Heritage Recovery Task Force established by the Community Minister Deirdre Harvey. So there is a big, bigger picture, I suppose, on culture and arts coming through there for sure um aside from the irish language act which is really important to them yeah uh the dup have um stated that cultural policies will be added as they are announced not as yet announced no, and actually there was a, there used to be a page on the dup's website with regards to where their policy stood about um, I can't remember what it was pitched as, like cultural something, and now it's just a 404. And they're basically just sticking to this five-point plan they have for the North, which is fix the NHS, grow the economy, keep the schools world-class, help working families, it's a cost-of-living thing. And of course, yeah. uh, one of their central policies to remove the Northern Irish Protocol. So that's their manifesto, that's their election plan, that's their pitch. There's nothing uh, really in there um, about cultural activity, artistic activity, um, you know, leisure, play, amenities. Um, so they're still very much, uh, I suppose, deta- like this is one of the reasons why the DUP is just hemorrhaging support, right? Because they're very much detached from uh, the broader desires about what makes a what makes a vibey life a vibey life. But it also seems like that was the manifesto written by a first year politics student <laughs> yeah we're gonna make schools world class yeah cool like okay um the social democrat and labor party have stated that they want to deliver an irish language act and the other cultural commitments in the new decade new approach deal um so again building on work that's been done before and taking out like learnings and key stuff that has been said is important already. Yeah, uh, that new dec- the, sorry, Andrea, just sorry. the new decade, new approach thing. That was like, I think that was the agreement that was came that was agreed upon when the executive uh, was restored at the start of twenty twenty. Um, they kind of came up with like an agreement around obviously the Irish Language Act stuff was in there as well. So, but there isn't an incredible 
amount it, or anything really in the in kind of in terms of broader everyday culture and that beyond the Irish Language Act and, and various agreements around um, uh, that basically. And, and of course, the Irish Language Act has been such a source of huge division. So again, that is kind of lacking there, isn't it? Like, I feel like all of them are lacking. There is no sort of vision and it seems like the focus is on the other more important stuff. Um, uh, the Ulster Unionist Party have prioritised the establishment of sub-regional sports stadia. Cool. Um, obviously, sport is as much of a unifier as uh, raving. The Alliance Party have... The Alliance Party are now we're starting to cook a bit with gas. Uh, commission an arts funding review. Uh, deliver outstanding regional and sub-regional football stadia funding. Recognise and support the development of British and Irish sign languages. Um, so they're so, kind of yeah. looking more at the funding vibes. That that's that's more kind of a little bit more more tangible than certainly than. Um, the UUP and, and the, well, the DUP, <laughs> it's not tangible at all because they don't have uh, arts policies really. But yeah, that's, that's, that's a little bit more in, in getting, getting into it, isn't it? Now, the Green Party seem to be leading the way. They have said that they will commit to a multi-annual statutory support and long-term strategic investment for artists and the arts sector at both local and executive level. Deliver a comprehensive Irish Language Act, including a strategy for the preservation and growth of the Irish language, and support public ownership and regeneration of historical buildings, using them for arts, culture, and tourism. So, definitely some vision um, there in terms of what could be coming through for sure. Any comment? No, I think yeah, I think that that's probably the most most broadly comprehensive one in terms yeah. of top lines. Yeah, but also looking at. Uh, bringing venues into use and mm. um, I think that is something that we need to be looking at across the island uh, traditional unionist voice have said they oppose the introduction of an Irish language act which would lead to discrimination against non-Irish speakers <laughs> sure <So>. Jan <laughs> um, ensure that all cultures and traditions in Northern Ireland are celebrated except for Northern except for Irish speakers um, <laughs> with special treatment for none Right, yeah. So this is the kind of the unionist supremacist approach that is infinitely paranoid about coexistence uh, and diversity of 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 any type. So I won't be, I won't, wouldn't be expecting um, great plans for licensing laws and <laughs> open up, you know, maybe open up storm into some raves or <laughs> there is plenty of raving from the TUV, but. Uh, more ranting and raving rather than glow stick kind. Uh, People Before Profit want to introduce standalone Irish Language Act, which like that is the most parties are coming through it. Greater investment into the arts with longer funding cycles and a living wage for musicians and artists. Fab. Glorious. Yeah. And then AIM2 would like to support the right of Catholic, Protestant and dissenter to be able to live their full potential without fear or favour from the state. Is that culture? Well, um, religious culture, I suppose, yeah. Introduce an Irish language act in order to give parity of esteem to Irish and English and to ensure that Irish-speaking families can engage with the state in their own language and greatly increase the provision of Gael, Scullina and Irish as subject in English-speaking schools. 
Ain't his what logo. What about the concerts, ain't you? What about the clubs? <laughs> ain't his logo, which is this kind of like tree type thing. It looks really like um, somebody who kind of started a jewelry company on Instagram during the pandemic, doesn't it? <laughs> looks like lungs or um, an ovary. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's certainly a, a veiny kind of um, part of part, part of the aesthetic. Um, yeah, that's not great for Aintu. It's kind of about they're leaning into the identity politics aspect of it. So, would you say who would you say now gets the um, Andrea Prize for Northern Irish uh, Arts and Culture Policy? Um, I would be leaning into the Green Party and People Before Profit. Mm. Excellent. Well, that is very informative. Now, speaking of arts and raving and uh, the unity um, and division breaking that culture and art can provide, we're going to talk now to the brilliant Sarah McBriar of ABA. So AVA is a massive success story. The Audiovisual Arts Festival began in 2015 in Belfast, features like multi-stage tune vibes, art exhibitions, conferences, installations that kind of crisscross contemporary art and discussions about that art and electronic music. It has evolved and grown to feature London edition, collaborations with Boiler Room. It's featured artists, including hometown heroes, Bicep, favorite of ours on the pod, um, and electronic music legends like Larry Hurd and Jeff Mills, amazing rising Irish acts and established acts, really like Orla and Searish and loads more. And the festival states its mission is to push the boundaries of electronic music and art, the boundaries of what is possible both inside and outside of major cities, the boundaries of what a festival and conference can give back to its audience. Love that. So what better person to talk to us about cutting edge culture in the North than the woman behind AVA, its founder and creative director, Sarah McBriar. Hello. Hello, ladies. Woo. <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about AVA, the background to it, how it developed, where it came from, where it fits in the European, Irish, UK cultural landscape now. The whole shebang. So AVA very much started grassroots um, and we started now eight years ago in the Titanic docks um, in an old shipping warehouse, actually where the Titanic was built. Um, and it, it, it very much was born out of this idea that there wasn't the right platform for artists um, in Northern Ireland in particular to um, creatively show up as opposed to, you know, work on a festival that's very sort of drink sponsor led or, um, or other. And I'd worked on other festivals like Glastonbury, Manchester International Festival. Um, and, and I'd worked with the warehouse project team for a couple of years as well. And I'd, and I'd also gone to a lot of festivals like Sonar, um, and, you know, like from the secret gardens to like the Sonar. So, um, I just, I, I was so involved in that world that I was like, I just don't understand with the level of talent that was coming out of Northern Ireland, why something like that didn't exist back home. Um, and so I kind of just said that to a lot of people and I was like, I really think we should do this. <laughs> so, um, that's kind of how I came around. And actually a lot of the people who were with, were involved from the very get go are, 
are still very involved. Um, like Oshin, for example, who does like all our lighting and runs a party called DSNT and works in us in a lot of bookings. You know, he's still, he's been there every year. Dave, who you know, Dave McDonough, he's our production mm-hmm. manager. Um, and and the lads like like Bicep, who are headlining this year, they they headlined our very first year um in Titanic. So it's kind of come full circle. Um and yeah, so that was the kind of impetus of it. Um, but also the conference side was really important because um for me on a personal level, but also for me from a growth perspective as well, like we wanted to be able to run workshops and talks and actually give something back to the industry and inspire the community and also feel that there was this date in the year, you know, where, where people, and I think that's the beauty of festivals where people can like create something and bring it, you know, whether it's a live show or whether it's like a talk or, um, an installation. Um, and so that's how it started. And it started as a one day, like we did the conference in like the back rooms of T13, which was an old skate park. Um, and then we had the main stage in the, in the warehouse. And then we had the boiler room out the back, which had like the cranes and an old, um, it was, um, like an old, uh, they just used to fix boats. I can't remember the exact name of it, but it went, it looked it lit up amazingly at night. So it was just like this epic sort of backdrop. And then it's just grown year on year, very organically. Um, so the boiler room was sort of a big thing for us to get across the line in the first year. Um, and that obviously in terms of exposure and platforming the artists and the festival gave us huge reach. I mean, quite a few of those shows went completely viral. Um and this, the power, the beauty of the internet, I guess. Um, you know, we kind of, I was, I was talking about marketing the other day and someone was like saying like, how did you market this in, in the first couple of years? And I was like, honestly, we kind of just hit that wave where like Facebook was really taking off. And, um, but it wasn't these insane like restrictions or like costs and stuff. It was still very organic. Um, and so that was a big part and the artists, obviously everyone being involved. Um, and then the year after we doubled and more than doubled in size, which was crazy. And then a the year after that, we expanded it. So it became like a two day multi-stage, the conference moved days. And then in year three, we took it to London and then the Printworks team actually came to us and we're like, we love what you're doing. It's very unique. You know, no one else is doing the conference alongside the festival. So we started discussing and trying to work with them. And then, and then that's where we've, we've taken it now to Printworks. And we just sold out there in March, which was amazing and like an epic day. Um, and, and that was the, the conference we do there into the sort of multi-stage event um, at Printworks. Um, and then Belfast, it's sort of moved around quite a bit. And then we're back to the Titanic this June, um, which is really, really exciting. I know. But in terms of like, I think, you know, I think for us, like we're very embedded in terms of working with local artists and we, we commission stuff. Um, we, we bring artists over to London. We work with them outside of the festival as well. Um, so like Holly Lester is a really good example where during lockdown, we um, asked PRS to support, to bring her over and work in the studio with like Bicep and come over and do other stuff. Um, in terms of like meeting labels and stuff. And 
I think like we try and outreach and create other opportunities. Um, and then the boiler room, to be honest, has been a big thing for artists, definitely. Um, and it's become kind of now we get requests from artists outside of Ireland who just want to play with that Belfast crowd and they want that to be their boiler room. So it's kind of come into their its own, like in terms of the energy and every year it's just bonkers basically, um, but in a great way. Um, That's a massive and- testament to the, to the energy that you're talking about and, and the, 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 oh, the energy and stuff the like crowd. that. Like, I don't think anything will compare to the first year and then last year because September, we had rescheduled twice. No one knew, like, when this pandemic was going to end. Like, we had no idea. Everyone was, like, real scared about where we're going to go next and what we're going to do. Um, and then we managed to rebook the, a site um, voucher um, for the end of the year as well, the end of the summer, end of June, uh, September. And we were just so lucky, like in August, um, the executive announced that outdoor gigs could go ahead. And we've been working really, really, I mean, we work really closely with the council and the police and the hospital services. I mean, that's like very much now part of our management planning. Um, So we were kind of really across it in terms of like, if we get the go ahead, like, you know. Um, So it was great. We were able to go ahead at the end of September and... Yeah, I mean, it was it was like pinch yourself kind of moments continuously, like the energy and the atmosphere. It was 21 degrees sunshine in both days, which never happens. And um, and yeah, like I think for the artists as well, it's just like a really special gig because it's like an unbelievable home crowd. You know, everyone loves playing to a home crowd, really. But then those kind of like environments coming out of the pandemic. So, yeah, it was it was amazing. From a Dublin kind of distance, it can sometimes feel that Belfast is pushing things forward in, in, in ways that are quite different to other cities on the island, like particularly when it comes to electronic music. And obviously AVA has contributed hugely to that. Is that the case or is that just like a, a, a gaze I'm putting on it from afar? Like there does seem to be more appetite for stuff that's really more on it or just more cutting edge like that's obviously a shitty term but just stuff that feels much kind of artistically richer and kind of at the vanguard of stuff you know I have to say like we do have issues with licensing but on the whole I would say there has been a lot of support um I would say that I've had a lot of support um you know, I would say the council have actually been very much welcoming us and really wanting it to grow and wanting it to support. And similarly with the artists and like the wider community. Um, And I would say artists as big as bicep to like artists that are just coming off the ground are as much championing it. So I would say that's a huge part of it. You know, I think one of the really good things, and maybe it's because it's smaller, like maybe because the scene's smaller, there's more of this kind of like, we want to help everyone um, kind of mentality. Um, and I mean, it's hard, I, I, it's hard for me to, I guess, com- compare, but I would say from my experience with Dublin, you know, I guess there tends to be a bit more of a pub culture than a 
club culture. Um, whereas I would say here, there is still a huge appetite for, for, you know, really good clubbing and really good music. And, um, we do have issues with venues and it's an ongoing thing. Venues has always been a big problem and there isn't actually any venue sort of like between that 800 to 2000. So if you're any kind of show bigger than 800, then there isn't really anything. So that's a challenge, but I mean, yeah, I guess it does punch above its weight. And I think, it's probably one of the reasons why I even started AVA because I was just like, it's madness that something like this isn't there to platform it. You touched on uh, issues with venues there um, about the capacity, but have you found uh, similar issues that we have in uh, Dublin, Cork and Galway where corporate gentrification and hotels are pushing out um, venues or is that happening up there? Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, the venue we started in for the first three years, the festival, um, that was developed. Um, and Queens, which is um, now returned actually as Mandela, but that was gone for like three or four years. Um, and that was to do with, I think there was a lot more international students, a lot more investment and they wanted to sort of change. But losing the Mandela Hall was kind of like, that 1,000, 1,500,000 like staple, um, which had a big impact, that had a huge impact. Um, and then, yeah, I would say that there's a lot of issues around restrictions on sound um, and, and that being closely, you know, to apartments and, and, and flats. But I, again, I don't think it's anything like Dublin. I don't think it's the impact. And I guess that comes from just the level of like money and investment that there's coming in and out of Dublin. Um, and then in terms of the other um, cities you mentioned, um, I, I, I'm probably not as like clued up with that, but um, I wouldn't say we would probably experience the same as what, what Dublin would what cultural supports and, and fund or like across funding or even kind of other policies, like you're mentioning how the council is supportive of the work and that kind of stuff and people want to make things happen, happen. What cultural supports do, does AVA avail of generally and what other ones would you like to see come through? Mm. Um, so we would usually apply for some tourism support um, because we do actually bring a large proportion through as um, tourism. So tourism for their benefit is like anywhere outside of like the immediate city. So if they have to travel in and stay overnight, so that can be wider Northern Ireland, Ireland, UK. Um, but in terms of like direct cultural funding, I mean, we were able to avail from the sort of Department of Communities and Arts Council during the pandemic, but we haven't received that um, previously. Um, I think there is actually, and we're, we're actually running a talk about this um, at AVA on the Thursday opening night around funding for artists and for cultural projects. So quite a lot of what we do as well in the conference is we try and platform funds or support services directly to an artist or a creative so that they can speak directly to the person. Because half of the battle is actually understanding how to do the application, who you need to ask questions from, what am I allowed to put in my budget or my claim and what am I not allowed to? So sometimes just meeting the person and asking those questions and getting them answered 
you know, can just all of a sudden get you the funding and the support. So there's three main bodies that will support artists. Now, these aren't bodies that support us, but we platform them so that they can directly support the art. Um, and that would be Help Musicians. They're UK and Northern Irish. Um, well, Help Musicians NI is the body of the UK piece. Um, Arts Council NI, they have a direct cultural fund and artist fund. And then the other one is PRS Foundation. So the equivalent of that in the South, I think it's Imro. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in terms of funding for artists, it would be the Arts Council or the, the Tourism Board tends to support events as opposed to artists, but it would be the Arts Council, Help Musicians and PRS Foundation. Those would be the three main bodies that I would say in the North apply for funding and there is annual pots for that. Um, and then outside of Northern Ireland, there are... BPI, which um, is the British version of, um, I think it's publishing rights. So again, if they're writing music, they can get that support. Um, so yeah, I think it's one of those, if you know how to do it and you know where to look for it, there is support, definitely. Um, but the Southern equivalent, I'm not sure. And I would say that because we sit within the United Kingdom, we would avail from those kind of funds that maybe if we weren't, we wouldn't. Um, we are rolling out our uh, basic income pilot for artists in the Republic. Uh, do you think that would be something uh, that could happen in Northern Ireland? Do you think it would be a good idea? Tell me a bit more about it. Uh, it means that artists can apply to have, uh, it's not It's not funding, it's basically um, like a wage given to them each month so that they oh, can wow. uh, be not the worry of where your income is coming from is there. So then you can have the freedom to create. Um, so yeah, so you get paid basically 325 euros a week and that's on top of any other, you don't, you can still work and you can still avail of other welfare supports or, or anything like that, but they're giving it, they're rolling it out as lottery for 2000 artists as a pilot scheme with a view to expanding it to kind of a lot of artists in the future. That's incredible. So that's yeah. a vibe. That's a yes. That's a yes. Oh, that's a like, <laughs> hell yeah, let's make it happen. <laughs> What's the situation with licensing laws? Like you touching them there in terms of kind of opening and closing hours and what kind of changes do you think would better facilitate um, club culture in the North? So I saw that you've got the 6am extension. It's probably uh, happening. Tabled. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so we can run until 3am in certain spaces. Majority is 1am and outdoors 10.45, which to be fair is standard like everywhere. Um, I think, you know, potentially somewhere like one spot that, that ran later than three could work. But I do think from my experience, from talking with operators and venue owners, there is a challenge around the costs involved in running to five or 6am. Um, and whether that's actually something they can afford to do, um, so it really, really depends. It really depends on the culture as well. Like I think obviously if you go to European cities like Berlin or, um, I mean, Portugal or, you know, somewhere where there's a much later culture, um, 
then it makes so much sense. Whereas I, 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 I'm a bit dubious of whether it would work for the venue operas from, from, from a cost. Um, I think though what they really, really, really need to sort out is a space that enables independent promoters of any nature to secure X amount of dates per year where they're only allowed X amount. So it can't be one coming in and taking it or whatever and enabling, um, yeah, that to be subsidized so that you can grow as a promoter, as an independent promoter, and you can experiment and take risk where that support is given because, I do think, you know, it's it's a big challenge to get a venue and then there's obviously a lot of financial risk. Um, and we've all seen the immediate impact of the pandemic on artists when they can't play live. Like live is essential to the growth of an artist and essential to like an audience, like building a rapport and building a following. And so there needs to be that kind of like venue progression in size and support. And it's actually the smaller independent promoters and artists that if you help remove some of that financial risk, you can really like help to like build someone's journey. So that would be my advice. Uh, the dance floor has always been a space for unity and bringing people together. How have you seen clubbing and culture progress positive vibes in Belfast? If that is the case. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I just think like there's like two really obvious ones, like obviously religion um, in Northern Ireland has been a huge dividing point. Um, and I would say, you know, a huge amount of my friends that I've made that I would maybe not have made at school has all come through dancing, going out, music, culture, and um, similarly your sexuality or whether you... Um, just want to like let loose and not have to like care about work and all those other things that are actually really essential. But I think it breaks down a lot of barriers and boundaries in a really positive way where you can connect people who maybe wouldn't necessarily connect. And I think, and I would say a lot of people agree with me for Northern Ireland, that's been like pivotal in in a lot of young people moving forward and not being divided over things maybe they were previously um and I'll, I'll never forget this at the first ava um a really good friend of mine's mother was there and she was like this is just amazing for me to see and i was like, why and she was like well i used to go to clubs in belfast and there would be an entrance for one type of person an entrance for another and i was like that blows my mind like that blows my mind. You know, it was really divided. Um, and, you know, they used to have all sorts of checks before you entered the city and stuff. You know, it was a really divided city. So it's important. It's very important. I would say it's very important to sustain um, and to continue pushing forward. But it's amazing to see how much it's changed. You know, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't ever know that anyone ever went in that in that way before now when you're in the city I don't think anyway so agree all about like anything that can foster unity and just like leave the any kind of division at the door is just so underrated as as like for creating social cohesion and and just vibes beyond the the silos that people have been imposed on people like so the dance floor all the way for that crack oh. um listen if somebody wants to go to AVA in Belfast this year, 
What are the deets? The deets. The most important deets. <laughs> um, so our festival's AVA, uh, sorry, our website, avafestival.com. Um, it's on Friday the 3rd and Saturday the 4th of June. Um, we are also having an opening event, which we haven't announced yet, but that's on the Thursday night. So if you are an artist and you want to learn how to apply for funding, we are doing a talk around that. And we're also doing some interviews and an in-store with a really amazing record shop that's just opened called Sound Device. We plug for Marion. Um, and then um, we've got after parties after the festival as well. And then there is a closing um, party on the Sunday. But the, the actual big festival is on Friday the 3rd and Saturday the 4th of June at the Titanic Quarter. And the tickets are on our website, which is avafestival.com. Brilliant. And final words, never lose, leave the sesh. Never leaves. <laughs> well, I, I was introduced to the, that infamous quote uh, uh, in the dingle, in the depths of dingle. Not that long ago. <laughs> Sarah, it's a pleasure. Keep up the amazing work. Really looking forward to the festival this year. You're a total rock star. And thanks oh, so much thank for joining you. us on the pod. And thank you for having me, ladies. Now it's time for Get in the Sea. Andrea, what we do this week? This week, tall uh, on. Oh, Jesus Christ, that's embarrassing. Uh, the continuing car park drama on South William Street. So it's like this episode, like I think a Netflix drama could be made about it at this stage. <laughs> so before when pedestrianisation was coming to town, uh, South William Street was pedestrianised. However, the at the time, Brent Thomas Car Park uh, said that they needed to use South William Street for their exit ramp. So, so South William Street was kind of pedestrianised, so they stopped cars from entering it, but cars could exit through the car park. Obviously makes no sense. So obviously there's been a bit of a drama within the car park because Brent Thomas have removed their name from the car park um, and to distance themselves from the the fight for pedestrianisation. Obviously, they know they're on the wrong side um, because there was comments coming out. Um, now, this is a bit of hearsay from meetings that they needed that car park for trade and to be able to gauge how busy it was in store and all those kind of things. So they've distanced themselves from the car park, um, but the car park is still continuing to only turn left onto South William Street. And it, was, it really became apparent um, because town has really been facing a struggle and the sun came out and suddenly people were back in town again um, after it being a bit of a wasteland for a while. And the difference between Drury Street, which is pedestrianised, had cafes, everyone lolling about, walking around, going into shops. So like trade wasn't being impacted. People were actually going there more. Whereas then on South William Street, you had people who'd be walking along and then suddenly, kablamo, there's a car like ramming up your hole. Um, so you're like, hey, I thought this was pedestrianized. It's like, oh, it is, except when the cars come. Oh, cool. That makes total sense. So it just, I just, I do feel sorry for Dublin City Council because they're uh, held over a barrel on this one. But like the fact the car parks are controlling our city and there's been opposition to Capel Street, which was pretty much a done deal. The car parks are given out again. So uh, car parks, get in the sea. Fair. Now it's time for It's Bananas. Bananas. 
it's bananas is, is a jewel filled item this week uh the first one is i've called it the plight of the small business in dublin and probably elsewhere um definitely elsewhere as inflation rises everything's getting more expensive obviously um and but things are getting more expensive for staff so staff need more money um and the cost of living's going up for everyone but the thing that i think is different for dublin is that uh, before there was like a glam vibe in town there was a reason to come in because there was an energy there was uh, things to do there was you'd go out for drinks after work um whereas it feels like everything has been eradicated so much within the city um for the people who live here that nobody really wants to go into town anymore there's no reason to it's just a bit of a hassle uh you can't get home from town taxis are shit uh not to, i don't mean taxis are shit but there's not very many taxis around at night time uh public transport obviously has its own issues um that we don't have a substantial nighttime uh, transport system. Um, also, we are the the continuing fights of pedestrianisation, um, the difficulty of of finding places to go, things to do, and it just screams of a lot of closures. I think are going to happen of small businesses because there is just. Um, the city seems to be t- completely tailored for uh, groups of lads. It's like if you go into town now, all you see is groups of men, like uh, from from tourists, um, strolling around the streets, and not very many Dubliners. There's loads of. Um, I've really noticed that there's loads and loads of stag parties around the place um, from like English lads or whatever. Like it's really kind of a, a flashback to like 15 20 years ago yeah and before where it was very focused on temple bar and so it felt a bit encased whereas now because all these um cheap hotels have sprung up um that it seems to be very much a destination for that type of traveler yeah just going on the lash for 72 hours basically in and out you're not yeah not availing of uh, adding anything to the city essentially um, apart from some stunning uh hotels that just have a na- a fixed name here <sighs> anyway it's 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 really sad and from speaking to a number of other small businesses like i've heard just heard like i just don't know how we're going to survive the next few months S- staff are leaving um and I mean the country, staff are leaving at a rate of knots. Price of everything's going up. I just don't foresee how we're going to last. We're going to be doing an episode on this in the next uh, couple of weeks in terms of the struggles that small businesses are having that are underreported. Um, as you mentioned, Andrea, emigration and people not wanting to work in town or come into town um, and people not being able to afford to live in Dublin. So therefore the workforce that would be deemed like casual labor or whatever basically is just not really existing. So Mm. I'm not sure how it's not like everybody working down in Grand Canal Dock is going to turn around and start working in hospitality. No. It Um, definitely feels like a city that is built for tech and stags at the moment. Yep. 
Um, also, the reintroduction of SEOs, special exemption orders, is going to come back in at the end of this month. Um, they're giving us an either campaigning to uh, get Pascal Donahue to uh, overlook this as it will lead to more venue closures. Special exemption orders is that €410 Euro that you have to pay for a late license. Nightclubs are the only people who have to pay it. Uh, that allows them to open late and they've been waived for the last few months and it looks like they're coming back in and until the the legislation and bill can have an opportunity to kick in which is like going to be a long time i think helen mcintyre said that she was hoping to have it done by christmas but she said that that was optimistic so that's a long time especially during the summer which is a quiet time for traditionally for clubs and so we've we're down to 85 clubs now that will probably go further if we don't have the space to uh if you have to pay 410 from the from the get-go uh each time you open you're going to open less you're going to only open on things that are bankable as opposed to any sort of experimental um freedom um and it just really is a, a kick in the in the shins for the club industry well, they have go to give us a night. They have an uplift campaign going where you can uh, just enter your details and send the link to the relevant ministers, or indeed get in touch with your uh, with Pascal Donahue and your local TDs um, to say that you don't want it. Boom! Now it's time for our fave bits. Uh, my fave bits this week. Roisin Murphy is finally here. It's been a long time coming. She's in the Olympia on Sunday. Absolutely buzzing for that. Um, equally buzzing for Rihanna's pregnancy looks, although I'm having a scrap with my mother who says they are absolutely disgusting. Um, I went to see Sandra Bullock's new movie with Shannon Channing Tatum, The Lost City. It is just it's such a brilliant, clever film. It's like a casual comedy action film and um, that is just brilliant, I have to say. It's it's clever, it's it's humor that punches up. It's it doesn't have to go down to the lowest common denominator comedy. There's something in it for like it's a real I don't a gender stereotype, but there's some like it's a real date movie because it's a, there's the romance, but there's the action. It's just brilliant, stunning. Uh, cherry blossom season what more do you need to say see you later japan gorgeous um very excitingly evian now comes in a can and it is sparkling wow can you can you cope sparkling water in a can is uh evian the creamiest water that ever did exist Mm. oh so good how do you feel about volvic oh god get in the sea (laughs) Um, last one to see pod uh, I was a guest on that and you it's but I think I talked about it before where you get to uh, watch a film you've never seen that everyone else in the whole world has seen and I did the Rocky Horror Picture Show and it is out at the moment and I would say have a listen if you've seen or not seen that film um, I'm obsessed with Teeling's Distillery at the moment they have a gorge coffee shop where they do delicious coconut lattes. Um, but they also have like the distillery tour and then they have an amazing space upstairs, which is a shop. Um, it's just a great little place to go for tourists, for people who live here to try the different whiskeys and just stun. Um, also, Glenisk Cherry is back. 
long live Glenis Cherry. Finally, after all the trauma and drama, they are back. Uh, Paloma is on the cover of Vogue. I just really love to see the rise of her and how her body shape isn't a, like her selling point. She just is on the cover of Vogue because she's fab and she's like living her best life. And it's not a big like the body issue or like, oh my God, bigger bodies can wear clothes. So well into that. And then finally, 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 watermelon white claw has arrived in Ireland. I haven't tasted it yet. I've got some downstairs to try. I'm wondering if it will be better than cherry. I don't know if it will, but I am very excited to try. I'm excited to hear your review as a cherry white claw fan myself. Um, I feel like watermelon might, may not have the, anyway, look, I'll, I'll, I, I won't prejudge anything. Enjoy it, Andrea, and tell me what it's like. I'll be back with a full thing next week. Amazing. Um, So my fave bits are coming up in Dublin as the Live Collision Festival, a project from next Wednesday in Temple Bar. Always really buzzy, different, fun, uh, deadly live art. So check that out. Um, The Less I Knew is James Vince McMorrow's new tune, which I really, really like. I was listening to it this morning and it's it's a gorgeous song. Um, And he's announced two new albums this year. Uh, The first one coming in June, The Less I Knew and another one coming later in the year. So someone's been busy. Um, speaking of new records, the Connect EP from Crystal Clear. Love it. If you fancy an upbeat bop, go for that. And also, uh, Deck Crystal Clear has a photography book coming out, also called Connect, which is amazing. He's a great photographer, actually. Um, another record that we have played uh, tracks from on The Soothe uh, is out now. The Line is a Curve by Kay Tempest. Brill, great. Someone, my mate was messaging me this morning just being like, it's basically free therapy. Um, and so, yeah, if you want to kind of unlock uh, some of the knots in your back and uh, the thoughts in your head, uh, this is definitely a record for you. And my other fave bit, I rewatched The Dirt the other night, um, the movie based on the book uh, by Motley Crue. And of course, it's like a corny film and whatever, but I just found it very enjoyable. And I think, you know, the lot, I haven't seen The Lost City, but actually Sarah went to see it. Um, but I think there's just a real space at the moment for kind of the a return to that kind of like popcorn fun. Like there's so much, there's so many films that are pretending to say something that are saying absolutely nothing. And there's so many films that are just like merchandising um, pre-sold franchise crap like all the superhero stuff and um, yeah sometimes it's just good to watch a, a solid a solid like 6 to 7.5 out of 10 film um, this brings me to the book of the week which I haven't uh, actually read a new book this week um, but uh, yeah just general rock and roll books like The Dirt like Hepatitis Bathtub and Other Stories by No Facts or like Heroin Diaries by Nikki Six or Scar Tissue by Anthony Kiedis and of course uh, Sinead Gleeson and Kim Gordon's uh, new book of essays um, Women's Work about uh, women making deadly music this podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan Crystal Clear gave us his tune chicken roll for our soundtrack and Sarah Fox did all our design this week's tune chicken roll is one of those songs from the Connect EP it is Mega Chords by Crystal Clear I've been Una. I've been Andrea. This has been United Ireland. And that was for the culture.
Thank you.